this morning. We're, getting, we're continuing through the book of Matthew. We're still in the Sermon on the Mount. And this morning we're talking about being hungry for God. Being hungry for God. I think it's very relevant for us in our cultural moment. But before we begin, let's pray together. Father, we need you, Lord. We need you now, God, more than ever. Of course, we've always needed you. And this isn't the first, <laughs> this isn't the first time, Lord, it felt uh, societies have uh, seemed to be crumbling, Lord. You are God. You lift up and you throw down nations, Lord. And, and the reality is, Lord, um, you don't owe us anything. And, um, the sexual morality, God, the greed, the, all kinds of sin and iniquity that uh, is committed in our nation and every nation every day and that we export God other nations, Lord, we just recognize that you are just in all your works, God. You are righteous in all your deeds. We just ask, Lord, for mercy. We ask, Lord, for mercy upon us. We ask, Lord, for special mercy, God, upon your church, Lord. We expect, we don't expect righteousness from the world, Lord. But, Lord, one of the great tragedies of today is the division that is found within your church body. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us, that you would fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, on the unity that is not possible, but that is a reality. Lord, we are not. Unity is not merely possible in you. It is actual in you. The question is whether we'll live in it or not, whether we'll believe it or not, whether we'll embrace it or not, whether we will set God our highest hope and identity in you in the coming kingdom and not in this age and in this world. God, help us. Help us, Lord, be hungry for you. If we've never been hungry for you, God, help us now, now, God, to be hungry for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And as I said... I think there is a need in our present circumstance for fasting. As I'm going to talk about, uh, fasting is an important part of the Christian life. It is an important part of Jewish life. It is assumed there. Uh, it is assumed that Christians will continue to fast. Uh, we will not fast in the same manner for the same exact things that the Jews did because we recognize that uh, that. Christ came and he, he changed things. He changed the people of God. We're people of God not through the old covenant of circumcision, but through the new covenant of circumcision of the heart by faith in Jesus Christ. But still, but still fasting is a reflection, as it has been in every age, of our hunger for God. It's recognizing, <laughs> it's recognizing that we can't, but God can. It's recognizing that we know no solution to our present plight and have no answer for it 
in and of ourselves, but that there is a God who acts on behalf of his people. There is a God who cares about his children and who delights in our dependence on him so that when we call on him in faith, in earnestness, he hears and he pleads. And that's what we need now more than ever. And that's what we're going to see in our passage today, Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. If you have a Bible, you can join us there. If you're, if you're here with us, uh, you received a prayer sheet, and it's on that sheet as well. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 16, Jesus says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The Word of God. So, we're going to see three, going to try to answer three questions this morning about fasting. Number one is what isn't fasting? What isn't fasting? Number two is what is fasting? What is fasting? And number three is how do we fast? How do we fast? So the first question I want to look at is what isn't fasting or what fasting isn't. And so in this in this passage, you'll notice that I'm, I'm taking a little liberty. The passage itself is pretty straightforward. It's pretty easy to explain. Um, it, Jesus is just talking about what we've been talking about all along, and that is don't be a hypocrite. Don't be proud of your religious piety and the three uh, most clear examples of that were giving, praying, and fasting. And in this section here in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he's really beating against religious hypocrisy. Don't pray to be seen by others. Don't give to be seen by others. Don't fast to be seen by others. Don't be proud of your piety. Don't think mere religious activity is pleasing to God. Because we can, we can be, our lives can be full of religious activity, but that doesn't mean we are doing it out of a love for God. We could very well be doing it out of a love for self. And God sees the conditions of our heart. Are we doing things to be to be seen and to be praised by men? Are we doing things just to get something out, get what we want out of God? Or are we doing it because we actually love God and depend on Him and rely on Him for everything? So that's really the main point of this passage. But since fasting, I think, is, is vastly more important than we also than the weight we typically give it in modern American Western church life. I think it would be helpful to just take some liberty today to just talk more about fasting in general. And specifically here, talk about what fasting isn't. Fasting, as I said, is neglected and misunderstood. And so I want to talk about how it can, how we need it now more than ever, and how it's an important part of our religious and spiritual lives and relationship with God. So first I want to talk about what fasting isn't. First of all, we should note that we typically use fasting a lot more loosely than, we, than the Bible does. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about things like fasting from sweets, <laughs> or ice cream, <laughs> or fasting from our phones, or fasting from social media, or things like that. I certainly don't want to disparage that. In fact, I want to encourage that. That is very important. Those Such types of fasts can be legitimate and bear with them great amounts of spiritual profit especially in our day where it's very tempting to think 
that who we are is how we're displayed on our social media feeds, our Facebook page, or our Twitter handle. That's not who you are. You're more than a Facebook page. Your life consists of more, more than that. And there's more that's going on in the world than what you see on the news. Because the what you know, the, all, all the news, every news thing is coming at us primarily from a secular point of view. It's not coming from a strict, and reality is that reality is not just, reality There is not just that there is a physical world, but there's a spiritual world. There are spiritual realities behind everything. And so if we're not viewing the world self-consciously through a spiritual, biblical lens, then we are misunderstanding the world. And therefore, we certainly won't be able to grasp or, or truly help and solve the great problems of today because we're not grasping the full scope of reality. And so fast from, fast from media for a time, from internet, from phones, from, and, and yes, from other things like, like sweets or things like that, those can be beneficial, greatly of great spiritual benefit. And so I encourage you in the spirit of what we're talking about today to examine whether there is anything in your life that is distracting you or that is throttling your wholehearted devotion to God. And to consider removing it from your life for a season so that you can focus on God and, and recalibrate your perspective from God's word to be able to more fully grasp the fullness of what's happening in our day. I think we all need that. I think it's all vastly important. And it probably help a lot of our mental and spiritual states if we just took a break. And instead of flipping on the news or opening up Facebook the first thing in the morning, we open our Bibles and we get on our faces and we say, God, give me the mind of Christ. And so those things are very important, but we should at least recognize that when the Bible speaks of fasting, that's typically not what it's talking about. When the Bible speaks of fasting, the Bible in the Bible, fasting is always in reference to food. It's self-denial of food for a certain period of time, typically to devote that time in earnest prayer. So what else? So the Bible typically ref always refers to fasting as food. What else isn't fasting? Well, fasting, as we have said before uh, in the context of this passage, is that it isn't a means to get people to think that we are especially pious or especially religious. In these, in these three things, giving, praying, and fasting, that's specifically what Jesus is teaching against religious hypocrisy. Um, us admit that when, specifically when it comes to the area of fasting, the danger here in terms of religious hypocrisy or religious pride is... But fasting is a little different. If if uh, if it if it became if if we make it known in any way or if it's, if it's known that for that for some reason any Christian is fasting from something for a specific period of time for a specific spiritual reason, that's almost that seems almost unusual to us. Almost that you know we think wow he, that they're especially religious they're super religious because they're actually fasting they're actually denying themselves something for the sake of spiritual pursuit. And so really the, the, the risk of spiritual pride is probably the greatest when it comes to fasting. Now, granted, that's probably more of an indictment on the spiritual condition of the American church than it is anything else. But it's still a reality that if any Christian almost fasts for almost any reason, they're viewed as especially spiritual. And so that makes the risk of fasting, of, of pride in fasting, 
especially significant. So we should indeed fast, and Jesus believes that Christians will fast because he says right here in this passage, he doesn't say if you fast, he says when you fast, do it in this way. And so Christians are to fast, but they're to fast in such a way that uh, when, that only God's going to get the glory for it. And typically, the way that's going to happen is that we're not announcing it. We're, we're being discreet as possible about our fasting to ensure that we are fasting only for God's sake and to guard ourselves from letting vanity and pride come in and make our motives impure. And so when it comes to fasting, we should be especially careful to be discreet about our fasting and make it and make it earnest before God. And the final thing that fasting is, and is what we've talked about before in relation to giving and praying, and that is that fasting isn't a spiritual coin to put in God's vending machine, if you will. There's always a great temptation in any type of religious life to treat religious activity uh, like like this, like this. Uh, I, I, I've experienced it in myself. I've heard it many times from other people. Who will, who will, you'll feel this feeling or you'll say things like, well, you know, something happens, something difficult happens in your life and you say, I don't know how that could happen to me because I did this, this, and this. I gave, I prayed, I showed up to church, I even fasted about some things and now look what God did to me. Well, if that's our attitude, then a legitimate question we have to ask ourselves is this, well, who, who were, what were you praying for? What were you giving for? Who were, what were you fasting for? Was it for you so that you could get what you wanted out of God? Or did you do it because you really love God? You see, there's always a great temptation to think, well, uh, you know, I did this, this, and this for God, so he owes me something. Yeah, God doesn't owe us anything. The Christian life is not doing, is not doing things to get from God. The Christian life is knowing what God has already so freely and fully done for you, that even if he never did a single other thing for you, it would be enough, because he's given you his only son. In fact, my one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Romans 8.32, that says, if he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The reason why that's one of my favorite verses is because of the logic of it. The logic of it is this. God has already given you his son. If I, give you, if I gave you my child, what is that? That's literally the, the greatest, one of the greatest possible things that I could ever love is what? My child. If I'm not willing to keep my child from you, how would I keep anything else from you? That's the logic of that verse. God has given us his son. He's not going to keep anything else from us. What does that mean? That means that in any situation that we face in life, then, it's not God keeping something from us, it's giving something to us. And so even in the hardships of life, God is not keeping something from us, he wants to give something to us. We don't do things to get from God, we do things because God has already given so much to us. And the fact that we woke up this morning is the fact that God is continually, freely, mercifully, generously giving to us. We don't, we don't have to treat God like that. We don't have to treat God like I do for you and you do for me. He's our Father. He loves us through Jesus Christ. He's always for us and not against us through His Son. We don't treat God like we're bartering or exchanging for Him. We treat Him as a Father. We, we go to our Father who loves us and we love Him and we ask. 
trusting that he's going to do what's right. So that's what fasting isn't. But what, what is fasting then? What is fasting? Well, fasting is a denial of food, biblically speaking. It's a denial of food for a purpose. And for, and for what purpose is that, is fasting? Well, as I've said here, and as I said in the, the, the title of my sermon, one way to generalize the purpose of fasting is a denial of food, a denial of, uh, from food, of, uh, denying oneself food for a certain period of time as an as a expression of and as a desire and, a, and as a desire for hunger for God. We fast out of hunger for God. That's what fasting is. Fasting is an expression of our hunger for God. It's a denial of food out of hunger for God. So that's my that's what I'm saying fasting is, but is it biblical? Is that is that a biblical answer? I think it is. I think one of, the, one of the passages that gives us greatest insight into the meaning of fasting is found later in the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 14. It says, it says, the disciples of John came to Jesus and saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unstruck cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. So what, what does that mean? And what does that have to do with fasting? Well, Jesus picks up on an important Old Testament language in referring, in referring to himself as the bridegroom. I believe that's what it is. It's a reference to Old Testament teaching. Especially in the book, in the, in the prophetic books, God refers to himself as Israel's husband. As Israel's husband. And in that light, then, Israel's idolatry, which the prophets spoke against in the Old Testament, Israel's idolatry constituted, on Israel's part, adultery. Right? It constituted adultery because God betrothed himself to them. God became their husband in delivering them out of slavery from Egypt and making a covenant with them. What is marriage? Marriage is a covenant. Right? God betrothed himself to Israel. Okay? And, and God was her husband, but Israel was unfaithful. That's why Jesus called Israel an adulterous people. Right? They were unfaithful to him. But that's, that's biblical. That's Old Testament language. And yet Jesus... Jesus comes on the scene and he says, what? Can my disciples fast while the bridegroom is with them? What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, you see, one of the parts in the prophet, an important part in that prophetic message is that, uh, is that God said that because of their unfaithfulness, God was sending Israel away. And that, was, that, that came to pass in the, in the Babylonian exile. Because Israel broke God's covenant, over and over, century after century, God, in a sense, I mean, he, he kicked them out. He sent, he sent the unfaithful bride away, right, in exile into Babylon. But, the, but the, the prophets, those same prophets also spoke of a day when God would do what? He would graciously receive his unfaithful people back. He would take his unfaithful bride back. 
And I believe that Jesus, picking up on that language, is coming and saying, it's me. I'm the bridegroom. I'm the groom. I am God's chosen instrument of doing what? Of bringing back his unfaithful bride. Of bringing back his people back to himself. And so Jesus is... Uh, that's, so Jesus picks up on that language and identifies himself with God's instrument of bringing back his unfaithful bride. And so Jesus' physical presence 2,000 years ago marked a unique place in all of human history because it was basically the time of the betrothal, right? God was, was re, re, under a new covenant, not an old covenant, but under a new covenant, God was re-betrothing himself to his people, making another covenant with his people, another marriage covenant with his people. And so, and remember that in ancient Jew, in, in Jewish custom, right, a betrothal was, was a marriage. I mean, to break an engagement, you had to get a divorce because it was, it was essentially a covenanted marriage that was just not consummated yet. And so, and so the betrothal is a marriage. And so Jesus did what? Jesus came to free us from the grip of our sin, to turn us back from our slavery uh, to free us from our slavery of sin and to unite us back to God in a in in the new covenant through His death and resurrection. And Jesus' death and resurrection was what it was. The, it was the it was the bride price, right? It was the price saying, I, you know, you know, I, you know. This it was the engagement ring. It was saying, I'm 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 taking this is this is my guarantee. This is my guarantee that I'm going to marry you. And in, 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 typically in, in Jewish custom, after the engagement, uh, the, the, the groom would go into build a house where they would live. And then he would come back when the house was ready. Remember Jesus' language? He would come back when the house was ready to take his bride to go live with her in their new home forever. And Jesus is picking up on that language with his life. The disciples couldn't fast during while Jesus was with them, because that would be like a bride fasting on her on the day of her engagement. It wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense, right? But Jesus said there would be a day when the groom would go away, and then she would fast. And then she would fast. What is that? I believe that that is the radical heart of Christian fasting. We fast because our bridegroom is away. We fast because we long for the day when we would be with our Savior in the place that he has gone to prepare for us. A place where there will be where there will be no sin. No sin in our hearts. No sin in anyone's heart. And no sin in the world. All this mess that we have today will be nothing more than a bad tasted, bad tasting faded memory. We fast because our bridegroom is away, because we long for the day when we can see our Savior face to face. Because, because if you've ever been engaged, you remember this. <laughs> You're engaged and you can't wait to the wedding. You're longing. You're crying out for the day of the wedding. John Piper, in his book, which I recommend is probably the best book on fasting, it's called uh, uh, A Hunger for God. And he says this illustration about when he was engaged to his now wife, Noel. He says, the birthplace of Christian fasting is homesickness for God. In the summer of 1967, I had been in love with Noel for a whole year. If you had told me then that we would have to wait another year and a half to marry, I would have protested firmly. For us, it seemed sooner the better. 
it was the summer before my senior year in college. I was working as a water safety instructor at a Christian athletic camp in South Carolina. She was hundreds of miles away working as a waitress. Never had I known an aching like this one. I had been homesick before, but never like this. Every day, I would write her a letter and talk about this longing. In the late, uh, in the late morning, just before lunch, there would be mail calls. When I heard my name and saw the lavender envelope, my appetite would be taken away. Or more accurately, my hunger for food was silenced by the hunger of my heart. Often, instead of eating lunch with the campers, I would take the letter to a quiet place in the woods and sit down on the leaves for a different kind of meal. It wasn't the real thing, but the color, the smell, the script, the message, the signature were foretastes. And with them, week by week, I was strengthened in hope and the reality that just and the reality just over the horizon was kept alive in my heart. See what he's saying? He's saying, my my when I got that letter from the one that I loved, I didn't want to eat. I wanted to read the letter. Why? Because I wanted my wife, I wanted to be with her. It was not my fasting at that time wasn't just fasting for fasting's sake. It wasn't it, it was that it was that my it was that my hunger for food was superseded, was overwhelmed by a hunger for something greater. To to be with my my wife, my 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 spouse, my fiance. That's what fasting is. We fast because we long for God. We fast because our situ our, our situations in life fall vastly short of what they ought to be, and only He can resolve them. We fast because we ourselves fall vastly short of what we ought to be. We fast because the world falls vastly short of what it ought to be. And fasting. And fasting gives vent to that. And it cries out for that. And it hungers for that more than it hungers for food. And it calls on him that we might receive it. And so, and oftentimes this cry of faith through fasting is met with an unusual outpouring of God's power in that situation. Because God hears and he sees that earnestness and that hunger for, his, for him to act. And he does, because fasting is not some kind of magic trick or some kind of meritorious work, but because God responds when his children earnestly cry out to him. Let's consider Jesus. Right? Jesus was contemplating the next three or so years of his life. He was contemplating everything that God the Father was calling him to go through. All the opposition that he would face, all the misunderstandings that he would face, all the slander that he would face, all the people who just wanted to use him for his power and for what he could do for him and not out of actual love and faith in him. And ultimately, the, the price that he would have to pay for his people dying for sins that were not his so that he could deliver and save and bring a people to God. And he contemplates over all that's about to take place. And he knows that he can't do it in his human nature alone. And so what does he do? 
Well, at the very, the very, his very first act at the beginning of his earthly ministry, after his baptism, is he goes out and he fasts. He fasts and he prays for 40 days and 40 nights. Undoubtedly, reflecting on all that's about to happen and leaning wholly, utterly upon his father for strength to do what he's been called to do. But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, that's how we can fast. Because we don't live by bread alone. But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, and that's what our Lord told that devil. And that's how he prepared himself for ministry, how he prepared himself for the calling to which we would be called. And if we are going to perform and fulfill the ministry that God has called to us, we better take a uh, we better take a, a tip out of Jesus' book and cry out to God. So that's what fasting is. That's what fasting is. So we talked about what is it fasting, what is fasting. And finally, to get a little more practical, we'll talk about how do we fast. The physical act of fasting is to allow hunger for food to be translated into one's heart and mind as hunger for God. You know, we're so blessed today. Um, you know, lots of times, lots of times we just, we're, we're, not, we're not really familiar with, with what true hunger is. Maybe some of us are, but many of us aren't. But if you've been, if you've experienced that, you're hungry. It's a, phys, it's a, it's a physical reality. It's a physical sense, a physical, a physical longing, right? A physical yearning. For something that's not there, right? Well, in fasting, what can we do? It's taking that physical feeling, but then in our hearts, in our minds, translating that physical feeling to hunger for God. It's, it's acknowledging that I'm hungry at this moment. I'm hungry for God more than I am for food. And I can actually take that physical feeling and, 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 and that physical sense of hunger and use that and say, God, this is the way in which I'm hungry for you. And so in that sense, it is, it's recognizing that we as humans are what we call psychosomatic unity. Psycho means, suke means soul, soma means body. We're body-soul unity. Our body affects our soul and vice versa. They're, they're interconnected. We can use the physical longings of our bodies to express, to express spiritual realities in our heart. And we can use the the physical longing for food to express a spiritual longing for God. And that's what fasting is. It, and, and, it, and it's two things. It is both an external manifestation of our hunger for God, is the way we express an already present hunger for God, and it is a bodily practice that can be used to develop and inflame greater hunger for God. In other words, we fast because we want more of God in our lives, and we also fast because we want to want more of God in our lives. We fast because we want more of God, and we also fast when we think, I'm not wanting God as I ought to want God, as I should want God. And fasting is a way to say, I want to want more of you as I ought to, God. 
it, there are things that are distracting me from you, God. And so I'm going to remove those out of my life for a second so that I can want you, so that I can hunger for you properly as I ought. Again, Piper puts it this way. He says, half of Christian fasting is that our physical appetite is lost because, of our, home, because our homesickness for God is so intense. The other half is that our homesickness for God is threatened because our physical appetites are so intense. In the first half, the appetite is lost. In the second half, appetite is resisted. So in other words, he's saying we both fast from our hunger for God and we fast because there are so many things that diminish our hunger for God that we need to get out of the way for a time in our lives to help us refocus on God as we ought. Again, Piper said this, and this is, this is probably one of the best quotes in the book. He says, quote, the greatest enemy of hunger of God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from his banquet table of love, it is a piece of lamb, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. He, remember, he's referencing that passage. You remember that passage? Where, where there's the king and he was inviting people to his banquet. And remember the excuses all the people gave because they didn't want to come to his banquet? I got, I, I got to go check out a yoke of oxen. I just bought a piece of land. You know, I, you know I've got a wife. All those, all those things. And, 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 he's, and he's saying, all the excuses that they gave the king for not wanting to attend his banquet were, were, were not sinful things. They were good things. And that's the greatest threat to our hunger for God. It's not God's enemies, but his gifts. And so practically what we can do is this. We can reflect on our spiritual lives right this moment. Reflect on your spiritual life. Is there, some, is there something that you're consuming in your life? Whether it's, uh, whether it's it, it very well could be food or, you know, uncontrollable appetite with food. That's a real struggle for a lot of people. Or it's something else, some type of media consumption. Or something, I mean, anything. You have to reflect on your life. Is there something that is throttling your affection for God? That is dis that is distracting you from God? That if you took it out of your life for a season and spent that time you spent on that thing focusing on God would be a bit spiritual benefit for you? Is there anything like that in your life? Then why not take it? Why not take the next week and give it, give it up for God, and see the difference that it makes? as you hunger for him, as you pursue him. So very practically, what we can do, we can, if you don't know where to begin, it's very simple. Begin with one meal. Begin with one meal. Take one meal this week and, and pass. And during the time that you would eat that meal, pray. Get on your knees and pray to God. And ask for God's help, because we need it now more than ever. There are each of us, each of you here have has situations in your life. You have loved ones that are that don't know Jesus Christ. Or that are in sin. You have loved ones who are sick or ill. You are sick or ill. 
You live in a broken world. You live, we live in a broken nation. There, there all of us have in our concrete, real situations in our life, all of us have need for, for an abundant outpouring of the power of God. Take that one meal. Deny it for Christ's sake. Get on your face and cry out to God to act. And take that hunger that you feel and, and, and convey it and give it up to God as hunger for him. Some people now, uh, some people, for for health reasons or whatever, when they fast, they still drink water and juice. That's perfectly fine. You know, you can take your health into account. But the point is to to ex, to experience genuine hunger as an expression of your hunger for God. As I close, I'm just going to read this verse. It's John chapter six, verse thirty-two. Jesus said to them, "Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven." But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. What did they want? They wanted manna. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never Jesus is the satisfaction of our souls. He is the one who ultimately gives and sustains life. If we want true life, real life, lasting life, abundant life, you're not going to get it from food. You're not going to get it from stuff. You're only going to get it from Jesus Christ. We're betrothed, and the wedding day's coming. I don't know about you, but I'm ready for it. I'm ready for it. Now more than ever. The wedding day is coming. And so we fast. We fast for our bridegroom is away. But we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's coming back for us. And finally, as I close this morning, I'll just say this. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you're, you're not... You're not betrothed to God. This hope that I'm talking about, it's not for you. But it can be. It can be today. You can have hope that when our bridegroom returns to take his bride for himself, you'll fall, you'll fall in among his people and not among his enemies. But to do that, you have to surrender today. You have to surrender now. You have to bow your heart to King Jesus. Turn away from your sin. Believe in him who died on the cross 2,000 years ago, who rose from the dead and appeared to his followers, who is coming back one day to judge the living and the dead. If you surrender yourself to him, believe in him, trust in him, not only will he forgive you, but he will make you his. He will call you his own. He will grant you citizenship into his kingdom. He will call you a part of his very bride, which he is coming to take back for himself to the place that he has prepared for us. So if you don't know Christ this morning, the most important thing that you can do is turn from your sin and believe in him. And if that's the decision you want to make, please contact us. If you're watching online, please contact us. Uh, via, you can email me on our, uh, our website. You can contact us on Facebook. The world's a mess right now, but let me tell you something. It's not always going to be this way. It's not. 
But the hope, the hope is not in society, it's not in the government, it's not in law or policies. The only hope that we have is in Jesus Christ. Because this world in its present form is passing away, but the kingdom of Christ is the only kingdom that remains forever. Let's pray.